2: Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello.
0: Hey, Max. Always a pleasure to have my calendar alert go off and remind me that I'm about to talk to both of you.
2: It's intro time, Aaron. It's intro time.
0: Uh, Who's on the show this week?
2: This week on the show, I talked to Miran Fader, who uh, currently is a staff writer at The Ringer. Before that, she was at Bleacher Report for a couple of years. And before that, she was at the Orange County Register. Uh, and Miran writes about sports. She profiles athletes primarily. Uh, she has written many, many pieces that have shown up on long form. And I'm a big fan. I love her stuff. And so I want to talk to her about how she does that. But... The other thing I want to talk to her about was her path. So she graduated college in like 2013 and she did this thing that has always been really hard, which is like becoming a sports writer and writing features. I think like there were always very few slots available, but she did it in this time where there were many, many fewer slots where people were losing that job all over the place. And uh, I was curious about how she did that. And so I asked. Max, this is one where you stole a guest off of my guest list that I now have to sadly scratch through. Dirty thief. <laughs> to be fair, to be fair. I was already going to do it. And then you were like, what about Mirren? And I was like, no, no, no. I'm going to do that interview. Uh, but it was a great one. She is um, just tenacious and super, super fun to talk to. She's also got a book coming out later this year. So it's a, pretty, uh, it's a pretty exciting 2021 for her. And it's a good time to talk to her.
0: If you've got an exciting 2021, let people know with an email newsletter from MailChimp. Thank you Malchim. And now here's Max with Miran Fader.
2: Miran, hi. Welcome to the uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for doing this.
3: Oh, this is so fun. I'm so excited. Thanks for having me.
2: I uh, I too am excited. I too am excited. And part of the reason I'm excited is that you represent a mystery for me. Hmm. Here's the, here's the thing that is true. For years, young writers reach out to me and are like, how do I do this? How do I become a feature writer? And when it started, I was like, well, you go get a job in an alt-weekly. And learn how to do it on someone else's dime. Or maybe you get a job at a daily and like you got to churn out a bunch of stuff and cover night cops and night courts and all of those different beats. But then you like start getting some chances to do features. And again, you're sort of learning on someone else's dime. And then in the last like, I don't know, five years or six years or something like that, it felt like that advice was no longer like accurate, you know? Like I just don't think those jobs are really there. And I haven't really known what to say. And that has dovetailed, I think, with far fewer young writers coming up than like even when we started Longform, which was a long time ago now. But so here's the mysterious thing. I can actually not think of any, almost, people who have taken that path in the last handful of years, who are now making their living, writing big, ambitious features except you seem to have done exactly that you were at the oc register took the job at the daily in what 2013
3: yeah i graduated from college in 2013 yep
2: graduated in college in 2013 got the job at the daily started writing features and now this is what you do and i I would like you to um explain that mystery to me because i did not think that was possible anymore
3: I didn't think it was possible anymore either. I mean, when I graduated college and, you know, I reached out to all the, you know, famous sports writers that I admired, they would literally say what you said, which is, I have no idea how to make it. And it was not a popular thing for me wanting to do features. Like at the OC Register, the prize thing was to cover high school football games. And I just couldn't think of anything I wanted to do less. And I was like, taking your own stats, like, no, I want to write standout features and they would always cut my stories by like, you know, 400 words. And I'd be like, damn, when can I get to a magazine? You know, when can I live that life? And it's crazy because, you know, Lee Jenkins was like my hero along with Wright Thompson and all of these people either retired. I know obviously Wright is still going, but, you know, Lee is no longer writing features and people I admired, I would just kind of watch them stop for whatever reason, layoffs and I just can't see myself doing something else. You know, I love this. Like, it's more than a job for me. It's my passion. Like, I I just love having the time and space to do it. And I've been lucky to do it, I guess you could say, um, especially in this climate. But yeah, every day I operate, like, if this feature isn't good enough, then I'll be out of a job because I love a lost art. And <laughs> that's no pressure, right? But yeah, yeah. I, I feel that all the time, very intensely. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's such a casual way to go through uh, go through I your know, work. I
3: know, it's not great, but it motivates me.
2: All right, I understand how that's motivating, but that still doesn't totally explain it to me. Like, I have to imagine that there are many people who are passionate about it, right? Who like want to be great at it. And that still doesn't totally explain to me how you were able, I mean, maybe I'm being dramatic here. It feels like you sort of like resurrected some path that I thought was dead,
3: it's it's crazy to think about. I'm always waiting for the shoe to drop like this magical dream that I've been able to live might end, you know, before Corona, I was like traveling all over like old school writers used to do with budgets and things like that. And yeah, it definitely feels surreal. I don't get it either. I mean, I think people gave me a chance, you know, Bleacher Report. I got into this during a sweet spot where long form was almost dead, but not quite. Mm-hmm. And I got in right when like BR Mag started and right. they were like, I think you have potential. At that point, they were recruiting the best writers and words were still valued. It was never seen as like the prize possession, but I got in right when it was kind of on its tail end. And since then till now, I pitch stories literally every every Monday I come with new stories. Like I'm always hustling because I do understand how lucky I am and how this could all be gone. Um, it's scary, you know, what happens when I turn 40, are they just going to cast me aside the way they did my idols? You know, I don't know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but no, uh, no existential dread or anything.
3: Oh no, it's not like I'm just like in my apartment all the time during the pandemic contemplating my future. No, not at all.
2: <laughs> so you, you graduated college in 2013 and landed at the register the same year. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about how you did that, because a a fair number of young, aspiring writers listen to the show. And I think that leap feels really distant for a lot of them, you know, like pretty unattainable. So how, how did you do that? How'd you land that first job?
3: Yeah, I reached out to over 50 places on graduation. I would just cold email people like, Hi, my name is Mirren. Uh, I love writing and I would love to help out in any way possible, like full time, part time, whatever, freelance. uh, Let me know. And like nobody would respond to me. And this was like all over the country, like Mississippi, Ohio. I was prepared to move anywhere. And I would either get like no or just like complete you know, non-response. And the OC register was like the only place to like send me a reply. And so I was like, oh my God, I got a reply. Like I can (laughs) do this, you know? And it was local. I grew up in LA. So I like casually, professionally stalked them for a couple months. Hey, here's my latest article. I just want to send you this. Or hi, I would love to talk about a position. And finally, either I was like super annoying or they actually did have something. And I got in there and um, I had a couple interviews and I finally got the job. So it was a lot of hustling and I didn't really have too many internships because I went to a, so I went to Occidental College, which is a great school, but it's not like an athletic school. It's a division three school. All the kids that I thought were going to ESPN or SI, they all went to USC. And so I'd be like super jealous and hating on the USC kids because they were getting all the internships and I wasn't. But squeaky wheel persistence, just reaching out to a million people, I landed the first job.
2: Can I ask what you got paid? Like what your first salary was? at <laughs> oh
3: It was $30,000. <laughs> it was horrible. And I was a basketball coach in my spare time. So I was commuting yeah. between LA to Orange County to Pasadena to be an assistant high school varsity basketball coach to make more money. Um, so I was working like 60 hour weeks to try to make this work. And I was freelancing on the side. The OC Register said you can freelance as long as it's not Orange County. So, yeah, I was bumming it up at the (laughs) (laughs)
2: Register. (laughs) And what kind of stuff are you writing?
3: I was doing all the grunt work that nobody else wanted to do. Uh, Little League baseball, community teams, Aliso Viejo soccer, like anything that, you know, youth stuff, junior colleges. And then it was really exciting when I got to do non-high school stuff. I got to do like Cal State Fullerton, UC Irvine, just like local stuff, but To be honest, you know, I would look at the Lakers beat writer, I would look at the Angels beat writer, and I'd be like, man, I'm so low on the totem pole. But then again, I had the time and space to pursue features. And so I realized I love this, even though I'm writing stories that maybe only like somebody's grandma's reading. um, (laughs) It was, I had the time and space to get better. You know, I was reporting every day doing this in the community for four years.
2: Did you feel like there were stories that you were like too good for?
3: No, I mean, I did not like writing the story I had to do on four-year-old baseball and the manager (laughs) was like on the phone with me for 45 minutes. That was more just like, oh my God, I can't believe this. Not like I'm so good, but like, damn, I'm never going to make it. You know, It it just felt like I was like stuck in Orange County. You know, it just felt like how am I ever going to get noticed or seen? Because I wanted to be at ESPN. I wanted to be at Bleacher Report. I wanted to be at SI. You know, I'm an ambitious person. I would read, write Thompson's stuff and highlight his passages. And I just felt so far away from that then.
2: And how did you go about bridging the gap? Because I mean, like, so you were at the register from 2013 to 2017. Not exactly like a time of great growth for sports writing. <laughs> right. I'm just, I'm I'm interested in what that time was like for you. I mean, clearly, you know, I mean, you just said it, you're like an ambitious person and wanted to get to these places, but I mean, there's like layoffs happening in most of them. And you were saying earlier, like Bleacher Report was sort of investing in it and you got in at the right time. But I, maybe this is all like too dark or cynical or something. But the thing I'm interested in is like, you're at the register, you're covering four year old little league, <laughs> like, How do you keep the energy up to feel like you're going to catch the break?
3: Because I was so determined. I would drive like 50 plus miles a day. And I just remember just sitting in traffic being like, if you want this, you're going to stick with this, you know, because it was hard. There was layoffs at the register every like financial quarter. Like the running joke was that we'd all back up our emails during every financial, like the end of the quarter. So just in case, because, you know, they shut off your email the second you get laid off. And I operated under that fear for four years that it would be my turn. But when you're so determined and you want this so badly, like, you're not going to give up. And so I could see glimmers of hope. I wasn't there yet. But for example, when I was in college, I pitched a story to Grantland and they said no, which was crushing. And
2: Do you remember what the story was?
3: The story was about Japanese American basketball leagues in Southern California. They play in their own leagues. It's this very deep story about race, class, gender, start of the internment camps. And I I worked so hard on that story and I was like so bummed. But then one of the kind editors there gave me an email for an ESPN editor and said, try them. So I reached out to ESPN. I got another rejection. I was like absolutely like embarrassed. And I was like, Great, now I blew my chance with both Grantland and ESPN. But I came back to ESPN, I was like, well, how about this one? And she said, Yes. And so that turned into one turned into two and then two turned into three. And so I started freelancing for ESPN on the side while I was at OC, trying to get hired there, but Again, like you said, layoffs, they weren't hiring. Then in my third year at the register, BR came along and said, you have potential. Like we want to interview you. So they came and interviewed me at the Standard Hotel. Uh, It was so bougie. Like I didn't even know what to order. I got like a cucumber salad or something. And I was (laughs) like, oh my God, it's a literal bowl of cucumbers. Like these people are going to think that I'm such a scrub. (laughs) And um...
2: (laughs) The cucumber salad's like uh, some significant portion of what you earned that week. (laughs)
3: Yeah, it was literally like the fanciest thing ever. And I was unprepared. And they said, you know, we'll fly you out to Philly to do a story on Monet Davis. And that'll kind of like be your tryout, see if there's a match here. It was the coolest experience of my life. And I still didn't get hired after that. But again, I kept pitching them and they kept giving me work. So it was, again, you have to pitch and pitch. So it was a full year after that of pitching, rejected, pitching rejected till finally like things started falling in place. Unfortunately, the register then did have layoffs again and my editor told me my job was being eliminated. So that started full-time freelance, half ESPN, half BR. Okay, we're depressed. Don't give up on your dream, keep going, keep going. Keep pitching keep hope alive. And then Christina Tapper, editor at Bleacher says, do you want to go to Lithuania to profile a mellow ball? I go and I get hired. So my story is one of persistence, luck, and people actually giving me a shot.
2: Did you back up your email before uh, they laid you off?
3: Oh, yes. I was like, you know, I think it could be my time. Like, I had this gut feeling. They put us all in a room, and they did one of those, like, look to your left or right, like somebody could be gone type things. And honestly, like, I just looked around, and I was like, pretty sure I'm the least paid person here, the youngest, the only woman sports writer. Like, maybe I have something going for me, you know? But no, that was it. And I was like, all right, how do I keep going because it really, you know, I felt really lost. I felt like I wasn't going to make it. I felt like I was just never going to get hired because I had all this freelance work with Bleacher and ESPN. And I was like, how come I'm not good enough to get a job, but I'm good enough to freelance? And it's just really toys with you, you know?
1: laughing because like who would have thought watch running sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how team milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course
2: forgive me I just want to like push a little bit harder on that thing because I understand that like it is just probably in practice just the act of like sort of being persistent and pushing those thoughts to the side but there are people listening who I think would really benefit from understanding how you stuck with that in that way like how do you actually do that day in and day out like how do you actually hold on to this dream when it seems like so many doors are closing and you're backing up your email?
3: Yeah, my lowest moment during that like backup email period during the final layoffs, I had just did an interview with this soccer player from Cal State Fullerton and I thought, the interview went really well, and we had this connection, and you know that, like, reporter is high that you feel. I felt that. I was so excited. I wanted to go, like, write the story. Then I got back in my car, and, like, my editor texts me, I think there's some changes ahead, and then I'm getting all these texts from, like, old timers saying, hold on to your hats. And I, uh, then I started crying, and uh, there was an accident on the 405, and the ETA said two and a half hours. And I just had a complete meltdown in my car. And it was just, it was a moment that I think really changed my life because, you know, when you're just, I don't know if anyone else listening has had a meltdown talking to themselves in their car when their dreams are on the brink of disappearing. I have no
2: idea what you're talking about.
3: (laughs) But I was like, if you wanna get out, you can get out now. Nobody's gonna think you're weak, nobody's gonna think you're not good enough. If this is too hard, get out now. But if you are not going to get out and you want to stay, then we're going to ride this out. Like, I don't know how, I don't know what, but we're going to ride this out. And I just was like crying and like honking and being mad at all the people next to me. And just, I just decided right then and there, I'm not going to give up. And uh, I continued to cry (laughs) for the next month. I was so ashamed of losing my job. You know, I'm a person that writes in coffee shops, and I would go to the coffee shop, and I would think that people could read on my forehead, she just lost her job, she's not legit anymore. I would just sit there, and I was like, I know you're upset, but you have to come up with pitches, because if you don't come up with pitches, you're not going to get a story. And if you don't get a story, this is over. And so I would sit there, like, fighting back tears, like coming up with pitches for Bleacher Report and ESPN. And then I tell myself, you can go cry in your car, but right now let's come up with some pitches. I would send them off. And I remember going to the gym, getting an email back from Bleacher, kindly saying, like, I get it. Like, you're really trying. It's just these aren't right. Keep trying, though. And then I would cry some more. But that thing in me that's like I'm not going to quit, it's just like, I wanted it so bad. I can't see myself doing anything else because nothing else gives me that feeling that I had with that soccer player of like being alive. But I should say people took chances on me too, even though it took a really long time.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, when you were sitting in your car in the 405, looking at the GPS saying two and a half hours, whether there was a plan B like whether you you knew what the other move would be or what the other professional route would be.
3: So this is the part that is super painful because sports writing was my plan B. Plan A was young Miran wanted to go to the WNBA and <laughs> I, you know, I'm you know saying it casually now but from the time I was 10 years old to the time I was 20 I wanted to be a professional basketball player. I was 10 years old, like putting myself through like grueling workouts in my backyard, trying to be the next Diana (laughs) Taurasi. Like I was obsessed with basketball. All I did was basketball. I ruined my curly hair by putting it in a bun to look like Taurasi all my childhood, teenage years. I gave everything to basketball. I played my first year in college. I went through horrific injuries That ended my career and I'm very small. I'm five feet tall. So it was always an uphill battle of you can't do this. You're too small. You're not good enough. So when I found sports writing in college, when I was done with basketball, this was the thing that was saving me from plan A. This Mm. was the pivot. This was like the thing that brought me out of my depression of like not having basketball anymore. So when I was on that 405, the thought of plan C was just killing me because I was like, I thought I did this. I thought I rebounded. I thought I found a new thing. And so I just had no idea what I would do next. And it's hard because you're like getting these freelance articles and you, you're like, okay, well, I have some potential, right? And, you know, and then when I would have to go coach basketball practice, I'd be like, man, I hate this. These girls are they don't want to play hard. Like they're annoying. You know, like they don't have that bite that I had. And so I hated coaching. I was like, well, I can't be a coach if I hate it. So I was like, I'm running out of options here.
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Forgive me for the question. Has there ever been someone in the WNBA who is five foot nothing?
3: There have only been Two that are close, Ivory Latta and Shannon Bobbit. But I did go to North Carolina's basketball camp when I was fourteen and I stood next to Ivory Latta and we were very similar in height, so I don't <laughs> think she's five five as they put on the roster. <laughs> 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 I had coaches lie about my height. They would say I was five five, so that college coaches would like not completely outright dismiss me, but it's not like five five does much, you know.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so not that you've thought about that at all before.
3: No, it's psh- me? What?
2: <laughs> so, this thing, this like persevering against odds thing, is uh, not new?
3: No, it's always been an uphill battle.
2: Where does that come from?
3: That's a good question. I do think about that sometimes because now being a woman in a male dominated industry such as sports writing feels very similar to being a small person in a tall person's game where I always felt underestimated and undersized and all of those things. But I've always been somebody that loves challenges and being competitive. Like, I was the first girl to join my elementary school boys basketball team. And something about them thinking I'm not good enough, like, pissed me off as, like, a 10-year-old. And even though they were, like, way better than me, I have to be honest, because I was new and they weren't. And they were, like, legit ballers and I was totally whack back then. I loved the challenge of trying to prove people wrong. And I don't know, ever since then, like, that's just been how I am. Like, I'm going to prove people wrong. And when I spent my freshman year at Lewis and Clark College before I ended up transferring to Occidental College, I was taking a class, an English class called Women Writers. And the professor says, and it was a class of, like, all women, and the professor says, like, women aren't supposed to hold the pen or something like that. From the beginning of time, we weren't supposed to write. And I was like so amped. I was like, oh my God, maybe I should be a writer, you know? And I think it's because we weren't supposed to do this or something. It was like forbidden, which I don't know, made me fall in love with it more.
2: <laughs> so that's always been a you, but like, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious now. Like, wh- where do you think it came from? Like, is everyone in your family wired that way?
3: I think my mom is like that. She's very, very tough. Just coming from like a line of like tough women and my mom's a breast cancer survivor as well and like would always talk about like being strong and things like that. And, but I definitely feel like I always had that, you know, um, because, I, because I thought it was basketball me, but then when basketball ended, I realized it was just me because I was like that when I got rejected from my pitches, the determination to come back for more. It was the same me. So I guess it's just part of me.
2: Yeah. And I think that's why why I'm pushing on it so much is like, I think that's like the answer to the mystery as far as I can tell is like, just, you know, existentially cry in your car for two and a half hours <laughs> and then like, keep fucking doing it. Like, that's yeah. the only possible way to make a career for yourself as a sports features writer in like the 2010s, basically. <laughs> Is just refuse to not do that.
3: Yeah. And I don't think I would have that mentality if I didn't play basketball. Because you just learn. You have to give everything just to have a chance to not Mm -hmm. make it. You have to literally give everything. You have to literally practice 24-7. So I'm just used to that. I'm just used to knowing that I could give everything and not make it. But I also think, like, I don't know. I don't know what it's like to not have a goal with something. Like I would envy my friends who just went to work and then went home and just didn't really think about it. It was just like, okay, whatever, I went to work. For me, I'm like, was the story as good as the last story? What if if the story isn't good enough? What if it's blah, blah, blah? And I realized it's like PTSD from basketball. You know, you're only as good as your last game because now people actually read my stories. You know, it's not the grandma in Orange County anymore. So I do feel that pressure. But somebody close to me said something really great um, a little bit a while ago. Instead of saying, I have to perform, say, I get to create. And it just it just reminds you why you're doing this, the joy and like beauty of creating. Like That's so much more important than performing well or doing well. It's like, why do I do this? Because I love it. Why do I stick with it? Because I love it.
2: Well, let's talk about the joy and beauty of creating because – in a way I'm like a little surprised to hear you put it that way. Cause one of the things that jumped out at me reading back through the last like several years of your work is there are so many stories in your archive, like a pretty significant percentage, like half I would say are really about pain, like loss and heartbreak. They're about people who are going through really significant trauma. And I I wondered why you were so drawn to those stories.
3: I think because they're real. I think sometimes people like to paint their stories as all positive and everything went right and was all great. And I think there's a strain of sports writing that I would read growing up where it was just like, so-and-so is great at basketball They're an even better person than they are player. It's great. Let's just tie the bow on it. Good night. And as somebody that's an athlete, like, I know that's not true. I know how hard it is. And so I just think if you're trying to convey the complexity of a person, you have to talk about their dark moments too, not just the light moments. And you have to, like, try to show all of it and show, you know, the humanity in it. Like, for me... I want people that know nothing about sports to be interested in my work. And Mm. if you're hooked by the story, the personal story, even if it is about something traumatic, then that's the goal. You know, I want people to like feel the writing. I want you to feel something when you finish it. It doesn't have to be dramatic, like, you know, I feel changed or something like that, but just somehow be impacted by it, somehow feel something.
2: That makes sense to me. But it feels like in contrast to another thing, too, with sports writing, as I understand it, in this moment, which is it's incredibly hard to get access. Athletes have every ability to communicate directly with their fans and audiences. Like, you know, there's a real argument from their perspective that they don't really need sports writers, certainly don't in the way that they once did. And so part of what I was curious about too is like, how do you get people to agree to talk to you about darkness and pain when like from at least from where I said, it's like not clear to me that they have to, you know? And I'm thinking about like Tyler Skaggs's family, who's a picture on the angels who died in the summer of 2019 from a drug overdose. And it was a really strange story. When it happened, I mean, it was inexplicable. No one had any sense that he had a drug problem of any kind. Baseball kind of tried to not cover it up, but my sense at least was sort of pushed it under the rug a little bit. And I I remember when it happened thinking like, this feels like a thing that we're never going to know what really happened. And then you did this piece, spending time with his family that didn't necessarily answer all the questions, but they really just o- opened up in, in a way that I found quite profound about their pain. And I guess, like, I was just wondering how, how you get them to do that, particularly in this, like, media climate where they don't really need to, you know?
3: Yeah, I always joke with my friends, uh, my job is how do you get to someone's soul in 10 minutes? Um, but you can't. <laughs> And so I think like when PR teams or agents say, how's five minutes? How's 10 minutes? You know, I wrote those stories earlier in my career where you could not get to their soul and it sucked. And, you know, I wanted something more. But I think you get to the soul and you get those deeper feelings of pain by, Understanding that good stories take time, and this is the beauty of long form. I reached out to Tyler Skaggs' mom um, and a couple other people like in the vicinity, like the school that she taught at and other places like that. Like, I gave it like two months after it happened, and I just reached out. And I was as honest as possible. I really said what I wanted to know, which is, Hi, I have read pretty much every story that's been done about him, and I'm really troubled by the way... It just says he died at 26 of an overdose, and there's nothing else about him as a person. And it really troubled me how a whole person's life was condensed into a headline, and I really want to write about who he was as a person and what you all have gone through as a family, as people. And it took literally nine months to get access to them. When they finally responded, they said, no, we're not ready, and then kept checking in. Kept following up, found the lawyer. No, we're not ready. Kept following up. It's not in a way that's like obnoxious, but it's just, hey, I'm here for the long haul. I really do care. Like, I really do wanna know. I really do want to get to the human part of this story. I'm not here for a quick gotcha soundbite to get on TV. And I think they respect that I center the human in my stories. As far as when you get to the place, they're not going to say something like the final line of the story, which is nobody put a gun to his head. They're not going to say that in the first five minutes. And I don't start out with anything about the death until we're way into the reporting. I think my first question was, what do you remember about him as a kid? What was he like as a baseball player as a kid? Because I think people can sense... Are you really here to tell a full human story? Do you really care about the people you're profiling, or do you just want to get right to the overdose? Um, and I think you just you build up that trust, and it's hard work. The wife started crying before the interview started. She's like, "I'm sorry, I just I prepared for this, and I just I'm so overcome by emotion." That's really hard. You have to yeah. know that you're you don't have a right to someone's trauma but you do have to be as empathetic as possible. Like empathy is the greatest trait you could have as a reporter.
2: How does that manifest in those nine months where you were waiting and checking in? Like you said you weren't doing it obnoxiously. What's like the non-obnoxious way to keep checking in with a family who's grieving after they tell you they're not ready?
3: Yeah. Just, Hey, I hope, um, how are you doing? I know this is, probably really hard and I'm the last person you want to talk to but I just want to say hi and I hope you're well um something like that yeah and then when I finally got to the lawyer who was like okay we're semi-interested not sure yet because they didn't want to talk before the investigation there was all these other factors involved in access like legal things um and so I told them like that's fine, you know, I'm happy to wait whenever you think is best. I just wanted to check in and say hello. You know, so it's not like, hi, when's the interview? Can we do this? You know, because you're coming into somebody's life that is painful. But that's also why, like, I didn't reach out for the first couple months. I just didn't think it was appropriate. I mean, how many interview requests do you think they had in the first couple months? Like, tons, tons of people wanting their time.
2: Yeah, just... It just strikes me as really hard, just like a hard balance to strike.
3: It's hard, but it's also just like, what's your goal as a reporter? I'm not going to find out all those questions. I don't think anyone can. We will never know why he decided to take drugs. We just won't. And so I just, I'm not here to play investigator, but I'm here to talk about a real thing that's happening and a real person that existed, you know? It's just understanding your limitations as a reporter, what you're really after, what you're not. Why are you there? There's a way, you know, I could have started the story with the gun, but I felt that would have been exploitative. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's all these choices that you make when you're writing about people's pain, what to emphasize, what not, what to leave in, what to put out. It's hard, and that's why I didn't want grief to be, like, the thing that the story went through. Sure, there's grief in there, but it was really who was Tyler. It's not just every scene of them crying. It was, like, who was this man and trying to showcase that.
2: That thing you're talking about, that balance of how you write about it without being exploitative, that, like, role that empathy plays in how you tell a story like that, is that something that you can learn and get better at? Or is that something that you kind of have to know how to do?
3: I think it's instinctual. I'm sure it can be learned, but I think for most people it's just in you or not. In the same way, if I'm meeting a new friend, I'm not going to try to ask about their trauma on our first friend date, you know, (laughs) we might just talk about like, what's our fave foods. Um, and I think as a normal empathetic human person, you just kind of have a sense of what's appropriate and what's
2: not. (laughs) Now I feel kind of bad for starting this interview by just being like, tell me about all the times you almost gave up.
3: (laughs) No, I know, but it's, you know, I just have such an appreciation for that, for the tough stuff. I don't know if it's because I just went through tough stuff as a person in my own life or not. But, you know, my fave part of long form is that it isn't about me. I rarely put I in the stories. I only put I in the little mellow to Overseas stories because my editor told me to and said it would be a good idea. And she was totally right. But other than that, I'm really not comfortable with it. Like, I really don't care that you guys know that I'm in Tyler Skaggs' house. I just want to center Tyler Skaggs' wife and mom.
2: That makes sense to me. Although, one of the things that I have learned doing this show for so long is that on some level, everyone is writing about themselves. Even, like, war reporters and investigative reporters On on some level, what's driving the thing they write about is something they're trying to figure out about themselves.
3: I mean, I think you're right in the sense that like nobody is free of bias. Nobody is free of their own experiences. So being on the outside looking in, being somebody that didn't make it, being somebody that was told you're not enough, I am 100% sure that colored my reporting experiences and questions that I ask and, and empathy and understanding. It made me an empathetic person. It just did. But I think that like, when I'm writing about them, I get to write about them. And I think that is why I love this because for the first time, like when I found sports writing, I didn't have to think about my own story anymore. Maybe it's there floating subconsciously, but I, I really didn't.
2: I think it's actually less in how you write them and more in what you choose to write about is what I was saying. Like, what are the stories you're drawn to? And I do think that a thing that does feel clear to me after doing, you know, hundreds of these interviews is, like, people are drawn to stories that help them answer some question for themselves, you know? And not, like, in a super literal way always. But, I mean, it's interesting, like, you're bio on your website sort of alludes to your basketball career, but hearing you talk about it the way you talk about it. And now knowing that like you spend a significant amount of your time writing about like incredibly successful professional basketball players is interesting.
3: (laughs) Well, I am sure that these things are related in, in, (laughs) in unconscious ways, but I often ask myself, well, why didn't you go into regular journalism? Like, why didn't you, you could write about other things. But every time I think of that, I get really sad. Like, wait, no, I won't be able to go on the court. Or like, wait, no, like I won't be able to talk about this or that. And then I realized that although the writing is what I love now so much more than the sport, I kind of can't do it without the sport. That gives me something. That yeah. I feel like I'm still in the game in a way.
2: Makes sense to me. Can we talk a little bit about um, about LaMelo? Yes. Maybe to start for people who are listening who don't know who LaMelo Ball is, you could explain who he is and, th- and then we could talk about those pieces a little bit.
3: LaMelo Ball is the third in line of a very infamous basketball family. So his oldest brother, Lonzo, was in the NBA first. The middle brother, Jello, was at UCLA and then went on a road trip to China with the team and ended up stealing. And it was a huge controversy, which made his outspoken father, LaVar Ball, who over the years, has made many proclamations about how good the Suns are. They're going to be amazing. They're all going to be on the Lakers, like just a whole personality on his own. Jello's like stealing actions caused Lavar to then take both of them out of school and move them to Lithuania for a season. So Lamello was like 15 years old when this happened. And so he was not able to graduate high school and he immediately was thrown into professional basketball.
2: And he has been like internet famous at least since he was 10 years old or something.
3: He's can't remember a time when there was not a camera in front of his face. Like, they were the biggest reality show empire. You know, people called them the Kardashians of basketball. Lavar pretty much pushed his sons into the spotlight and, you know, put a lot of pressure on them. And so LaMelo, I always found him the most interesting because he had to grow up like that. Lonzo did not have the spotlight at first. He was just a normal kid at Chino Hills, and then everything changed.
2: So you went and wrote this piece on him when he was a 15-year-old professional basketball player in Lithuania. And I mean, my experience of him just like as a casual sports fan on the internet was just like that he was like a curiosity avatar, basically. You know, like he was just like you just see these clips of him and it was weird and he was like very small, but clearly very good at basketball. But it was also like didn't make a lot of sense that he was as famous as he was. But it was impossible to know what he was actually like. He was just kind of like a gangly kid throwing like incredible passes. And then you went and wrote this piece about him. And my sense, at least from the outside, was that that was a pretty big moment for you in your career. That story was a big deal.
3: Yeah, that changed everything. You know, I got hired after that. And... I had never been out of the country by myself ever. So there was just a whole lot of life experiences happening. You know, I was there for almost a month.
2: How old were you when you went?
3: I was 26.
2: Yeah. So like 11 years older than him.
3: (laughs) Yeah. It's just so weird because... And there's lines in the piece that, you know, talk about, like, we're not in Cali anymore, you know, because I'm from California, he's from California, we're thrown into this icy cold thing. You know, he thought it was going to be a blast. I thought I was going to write about Kid Takes Europe, but it ended up being like this horrible, horrible situation in this sham of a league and we're cold and we don't speak the language. And that was the hardest reporting experience ever. But being able to have that opportunity and do that just kind of changed my... Whole career, really, it changed everything. How so? Well, the day that it came out, I kept seeing follow back, follow back, follow back from all my heroes. And I was like, oh my God, like this person followed me back. You know, I was like, I'm such a fan of all my favorite writers. So, on the one hand, I was like, oh my God, people read it. You know, like it's not just a grandma. And secondly, like it just got so much trust in. My new editors at Bleacher Report, like that, I could pull off this really difficult thing. And um, just being hired and like feeling like I broke through, like I finally did it, you know? Like I did it. Like I I, yeah. I, I, I cried so many tears. I, you know, I, I did it. And like they let me do it. That's the thing. Like you have to be ready and you have to work hard, but somebody has to give you a shot. And like they gave me a shot.
2: When you were there, when you were in Lithuania, when did you know you had it?
3: Okay, so everything went wrong the second I got there. (laughs) I thought I was going to be able to talk to LaMelo and all this stuff, which is why they sent me. We had loosely talked with the PR team for LaMelo, and they're like, yeah, sure, come. Come. But then a reporter published this story about Lavar Ball making mean comments about Luke Walton. And LeVar was like, we're shutting down all access. So all the other reporters fly home. And I'm the only one that stays, my editors are like, well, figure it out. <laughs> so I decided to go to the gym the next day. There's only one gym in this little town. So I was like, it has to be this one, I think. And I was like, I'm just going to wait there until they get there. And then I'm just going to hope they don't kick me out. You know, I have to find a way to get access. So I, the door is like miraculously open and I like sit and I'm just hoping that nobody will discover me. And then three hours later, LaVar Ball and them come in with the reality show cameras and this like Lithuanian policeman guy comes up to me and he's like, who are you? Like, what are you doing here? And I was really honest. I was like, you know, I'm a journalist, I'm writing, but I'm just here to observe, you know, I was playing it down a little bit. And... Honestly, I think he let me stay because I don't think he took me seriously as a journalist. I think he was like, yeah, sure. Like, who is this little girl? Um, But I don't care. It worked. And I stayed. And I just kept coming back every day for three weeks. And so once I knew that I was seeing what was happening, I had a front row seat without having access. I had all the access in the world without having it. That's when Mm -hmm. I knew I was like, I can do this. Like, I understand the story now. It's not what I thought it was going to be. This isn't fun. This isn't exciting. This is really tragic. And this boy is lost in his father's media empire.
2: You were talking earlier about, like, the reporter's high. Like, did you have it then before you'd even talk to him?
3: I had it so much because... I couldn't believe what I was seeing, like they never ran a sprint, you know, and like I vividly remember like throwing up after seventh grade basketball practice because we ran so much and I couldn't believe that these were like grown men and they were just like walking through practice and I was, you know, writing in my notebook like, oh my God, no sprints, you know, I was just (laughs) feeling like this like reporter's high of just like observation because like you said, there's no access in our world. And I got to, like, observe something and write it down. This is, like, what all the greats talk about. This is what Wright Thompson talks about. Write it all down. Make sense of it later. I felt like I was on the verge of, like, something big. I felt like I was on this big adventure that Wright Thompson or Lee Jenkins would do. And I was just, Mm -hmm. like, so hyped to have (laughs) this chance, you know. But it was also, like, extremely miserable because I wasn't – really eating much. It was in a really tiny town. There wasn't much available. And it was just really hard because I was afraid of not performing up to standard and not being able to speak the language. I didn't have a translator. I had to find somebody on the team that seemed nice who spoke English and get him to translate for me. You know, there were all these challenges. It was the hardest story ever, but (laughs) I did get so much reporter's high.
2: All right. So this piece comes out. You get hired at Bleacher Report how long had you been freelancing for
3: about a year and some change
2: you're a year and change out from archiving your emails <laughs> yeah. you land a full-time gig and then you just go on this run at bleacher report and i like from the outside I just remember seeing like byline after byline all these stories and then how long afterwards after that first Lamelo story did you go hang out with him in australia
3: it was a year and a little bit. So I went in October 2019 to Australia. So I guess year and a half.
2: And that's not the only time that you've like returned to subject, right? You wrote about Devonte Adams a couple times. Help me understand what the motivation is there. Like why go back to the same people? I mean, it's like you've only got, I don't know, a dozen swings a year or whatever it is. Like why go back again? Why go profile him again in another country when he's having another sort of like basketball misadventure?
3: Because I think something has to change in their lives. And what changed was that his dad was no longer there in the way that the dad was in Lithuania. And I wanted to know, could he actually become his own man in a different country? They speak English now, things should be better. What would that do to him? And I think to your point about like access, you know, if you have gotten to talk with someone and they give you that time and space and you have that writerly relationship and something is different in the narrative, like why not? I knew he was going to be the top pick in the draft, so it was timely. And you know, I wanted to see if he was happier. Honestly, he was very miserable looking in Lithuania yeah. and he was older, he could open up more. And I wanted to like build on that relationship and ask him more about what he had gone through. And, you know, Brandon Ingram is another guy that I profiled twice. And the reason was he was part of this huge trade and he went through a life-changing scare with his health. And so I was just like really curious what that experience was like. But I think in, the, in our industry, you will find certain players who do see the value of talking to a reporter that they trust.
2: And what what do you think is the value that they're seeing? Because, I mean, particularly that Australia piece with LaMelo, he does seem to be talking to you in a way that I have never seen him talk to anybody else. But I still don't totally understand or be interested in why. Like, what do you think the reason is that he or Brandon Ingram uh, or any of these, like, incredibly famous 20-something basketball players see any value in talking to a reporter.
3: I know. I, they never needed me. They don't need me. But I think that there's a moment in our interviews where I can tell that they feel seen and understood. And I can tell when that moment happens that they trust me to tell their story right, warts and all. And I think that there's something that they value in that. And that's why Brandon Ingram was like, oh, if I want to talk to somebody, I want to talk to her. Mm-hmm. Devonte Adams was like, I trust her. Like, I want to talk with her, you know? And I think, like, that wasn't established within five minutes. It wasn't established because I'm a name, because I'm not. I'm not on TV. It's established because they feel heard and seen when they're talking to me because they can tell that I care more about them. Like, Devontae Adams was cracking up because it was, like, two hours in, and he was like, you haven't asked me about Aaron Rodgers, <laughs> And I was like, oh, whoops, you know? And I was like, yeah, because I don't care. I mean, I care about him, but I don't, this is your story, you know? But he's used to people asking about Aaron Rodgers on the first question, you know? And so players just know like, oh, whoa, like this reporter's asking me about my mom. That's kind of weird, but that's kind of cool. You know, it's different.
2: Does that sound to you like the same dynamic with Tyler Skaggs' family?
3: Yeah. Like we are talking about his in and out order, And they were so tickled that I wanted to know the exact order. And sometimes subjects can be weird about that. Like, why do you need to know what kind of burger he got? Or, like, why do you need to know that the car was red? But I think they could see that I really was genuine in trying to, like, see who Tyler was. And, you know, this is their son. Like, I can't over – like, this was their everything – And that you care enough to, like, ask about who he was and not just how he died is, like, very important.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It's like, you know, we started this conversation and I was asking you, like, how did you pull out this thing that I thought was, like, impossible to pull off? And your answer was basically, like, give a shit. Like, (laughs) right? I mean, that's like if you, like, reduce the fraction down as much as possible, it's just, like, care an immense amount. Yeah. And... Then there's a similar question, which is like, how do you get professional athletes in 2021 to be honest with you and to give you real time when their need to do so has completely changed in the last 20 years? And the answer, again, I think is like, give a shit.
3: Give a shit and show up. Sometimes like the player will know. I saw you here like four hours early and I'll be like, yeah, you know kind of my job. I want to do a great job. (laughs) He's like, no, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, They see you here four hours early. They see you here. They talk with their friends who have talked with you. They know you hit up their best friend in seventh grade. AAU. Like they know that you keep showing up and that you care. And I'll just say one more thing is that trust me, there's so many stories I miss out on because I can't get access. And so many stories where I thought I had access and it fell through. My whole life is just following up. Like I like call myself the follow-up queen.
2: Yeah, how many Like how many balls in the air do you have at once? Like
3: a million. Like I've shot my shot with Luca. I've shot my shot with Kyrie. I've shot my shot and I'm still waiting for something to drop. And you know what? I'm going to keep shooting my shot. And if I don't get access to them, that's okay. But I definitely can if I don't try, you know? So I, I definitely, for as much access as I get, I get turned down all the time
2: does it still feel as live and die by the story as it did? I mean, we haven't talked about it, but a couple of weeks from now, you're going to put out this huge feature and we can't really get into the details of what it is, but it's, it's a big, big story. And I think it will get a tremendous amount of attention. And then you've got this book about Giannis coming out later this year. Like, if you think about like, um, 405 mirin, you know, you're on pretty solid ground now, or does it feel that way to you?
3: You know, that's what my mom tells me. She's like, I wish you would, <laughs> <laughs> she's like, I wish you would take a second to just stop and look at how far you've come and like appreciate your hustle. And I always tell her like, I'm working on it, but also got to keep grinding because you never know. Nobody ever makes it, makes it, right? You make it, and every day you have to keep making it, you know? And that's how I feel. And would I be the reporter I am if I wasn't like that? I'm afraid to see what happens if I'm not. (laughs) Um, I'm afraid, like, what type of reporter or writer I'll be if I take my foot off the gas. So... I'm working on it. I swear I'm working on being kinder to myself and to not live and die by every story and think, oh, this one needs to be better than the last one, or we need to do this, or, you know, I'm really working on it. But I also know that these are the things that drive me as well. I know it. I just know it. And maybe if I get to a place where I'm not like that, I don't know, what would the the fun in that be when there's no pressure on? What would the fun in that be? I don't know. I don't know how to operate like that.
2: After this conversation, it's pretty hard for me to imagine you operating like that.
3: Yeah, I I don't think I will. I mean, you know, it's turning down the volume on it, you know, softening it a little. And I've come a long way, believe it or not. I know it doesn't sound like that, but I really have come a long way. I used to get so upset with myself if, you know, an editor said something like, basically, we need a rewrite. You know, nobody likes that call. So I just wanted to talk. I think it's not working. (laughs) I would just immediately get like so emotional, like, oh man, I failed. Now I'm obviously like a bit more mature. And I know that that just means I have a great editor that cares about me.
2: That seems pretty healthy.
3: That is very healthy. I'm okay. Pat (laughs) self on the back.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Mirna, I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you so much.
3: That was so fun. Thank you for having me.
2: Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky, my co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Piper, and our intern is Susan Peterson. Thanks to them. Thanks to our loyal, trusty sponsors, MailChimp, and thanks so much to Miren Fader. That was a uh, that was an invigorating conversation'm I'm, uh, I'm pumped up I want to go do something uh, what a pleasure it was to talk to her We'll see you next week.